Welcome, fellow traveller, to the TED Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Dr. Selina Stone is the tutor and lecturer in political theology at St. Melitus College in London. However, she lives in Birmingham, which is also where she did her doctorate. Entitled Holy Spirit, Holy Bodies, Pentecostalism, Pneumatology, and the Politics of Embodiment. All of Selena's research and teaching focuses on the themes of politics, power, and social justice, which she began exploring as a practitioner while working as a community organizer and program director for the Center for Theology and Community, which is where I first met Selena. I was glad to have her into the tent. She, in fact, has been one of the people I most wanted to have on for quite a while now, for reasons which will become apparent when you hear her speak. I was really glad to get Selena to talk me through her doctrinal studies and to take me to school when it comes to Pentecostals, pneumatology, and the politics of embodiment. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I am very glad to welcome to the tent my friend Selena Stone, Dr. Selena Stone. <laughs> is that right, Selena? Yes, you are a doctor. Is. It is. Uh, so, Selena, I was just telling you just before I pressed record, when I started the Tent Theology podcast, which is now called Tent Talks Podcast, by the Ooh. way, just to broaden the, the range, uh, you were right on my list. I mean, I, you must have been the top five person uh, oh, in wow. the top five that I wanted to speak to. I made a little list of people who's got to be on this podcast. But then you are, your life has been busy. You were working on your PhD. You were moving from one city to another. You were all over yeah. the place. And I, and I think I must have emailed you and you must have said, either you ignored my email or you just said, <laughs> I can't deal. <laughs> Which is 100% fair enough. So uh, Dr. Selena Stone, tell us, what have you been doing for the last five years, three years, four years? What, is, what has kept you from being on my podcast, Selena? <laughs> Nothing that will sound good enough, I fear. Um, but no, I mean, it's just been a crazy journey. Isn't it? I mean, I've been doing my PhD part time yeah. while I've been working in the job that you actually had before me, Stephen. You prepared me to take over your role, um, whether consciously or, or, or unconsciously. I had um, very tiny shoes that you, you, you were unable to <laughs> My role was I was lecturer in social and political theology at St. Melitus College. Is that the title that you kept or have you changed I mean, it that? should be, but it's it somehow become political theology, which is not accurate because it's it's definitely social and political theology. Okay. Um, so what is your title then at St. Melitis? It's tutor and lecturer in theology. Political theology, sorry. Very good. Okay. And you've been there, well, since I left the job. So yes. five years. So this is my fifth year, indeed. Wow. And so besides marking lots of essays, what... What is the bulk of your work? Who, what, what kind of students are you teaching? What kind of subjects are you yeah, talking about? So, so my, my students are predominantly ordinands in training. So people training to be priests in the Church of England and also people who just want to do a degree in theology. It can be quite a mixed group and a, quite a wide range of students, actually, in terms of age. Um, we have students who are like fresh out of uni who are doing a degree or a kind of postgraduate degree or doing some theology after they've done a previous degree and then we have people all the way up to like retired police officers who are 
now entering into ministry training. So it's a, a very broad range of students. Um, and, and the subjects that I teach, I do two major modules. The first undergraduate module is basically social and political theology. And I, I change it quite a lot, actually, um, from your time, Stephen, which of course is what I What? Oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> It was a very good module, Stephen. Selena, every <laughs> word that drops from my mouth is pure gold. I'm, you should have been making a little shrine to everything I ever said. It was very good, Stephen, obviously, but I had to, you know, spruce things up a little bit. Um, and, and, and it's now, like, so much of this is, like, liberation theology, okay. Black womanist theology, um, we've got some eco-theology in there, Pentecostal theology, a whole range of things that students have just never been exposed to before or might have heard of, yeah. had a slight introduction to, but it's been that the joy of it actually has been me becoming bold about bringing those voices to the fore um, and, and students reading things that they've just never read before. So it's been such a joy. Oh, that's really good. That's, that's excellent. Why I've got you, okay, first of all, where are you calling in from? We also have to tell our North American listeners that your accent is not a London accent, even no. though you teach at a London college. Where are <laughs> exactly. you from, Selena? So I'm from Birmingham, which is oh, in the Midlands, right. in the right in the middle, in the heart of England. So that's where I'm from. And you, you, you travel into London to teach. Yeah. And you, and you write, and you got a doctorate as yeah. well. So exactly. listen, this is why we're here. Your doctorate, which just you were just awarded the doctorate just. Was it in March this year? Um, no, year? it was in August. So I submitted in March submitted and my Bible was in July, yes. Holy Spirit, Holy Bodies, Pentecostal Spirituality, Pneumatology and the Politics of Embodiment. All right. What we're going to do, you're going to talk me through this. You're, you're going to take me to school. Because uh, even already, it, when you talked about the things that you've been putting on the uh, political theology reading list, I was just aware Black womanist theology, eco-theology, there are huge gaps in my education as well. So take me to school, Selena. I want to know. <laughs> all right. First of all, let's talk uh, Pentecostal spirituality. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be using the word Pentecostal a lot. What do you mean by Pentecostal? I mean, in, my, in the thesis, what I'm really trying to focus on is kind of what is known as classical Pentecostalism, which is understood predominantly as the Pentecostalism that spreads around the world through the Azusa Street revival in 1906. So this is a kind of a church led by William Seymour, who's an African-American, the son of previously enslaved parents, who is raised in the holiness movement, moves to Los Angeles and prays for revival. And this revival takes place in this predominantly black holiness church in, on Azusa Street, and revival happens and people travel all over the world from all over the world to go to Azusa Street. And um, revival begins to spread globally from this revival at Azusa Street. And um, so classical Pentecostalism is often traced to this place. And um, so that's what I'm thinking about mainly. But then the Soya British Pentecostalism is, is, is kind of broadened because we have the Welsh revival in 1904. And so that becomes a kind of earlier thread that's happening at the similar kind of time, but that also feeds very much into the story of British Pentecostalism. So there's kind of like a couple of different tributaries that feed into Pentecostalism when I'm thinking about it in my thesis. But that's the sort of white British Pentecostalism. Are you dealing also with the black British Pentecostal experience? Is that a third strand or do you include that in 
British Pentecostalism? So that comes via Aziza Street Revival. So the Aziza Street Revival, which then leads to people from the US traveling to places like the Caribbean as missionaries, and also people are traveling from the UK as well. But the, the kind of strong denominations of, and thinking about like particularly Caribbean Pentecostalism, have come through America. So missionaries from Church of God, Church of God in Christ, going to Jamaica and other parts, other islands in the Caribbean, you know, starting churches and then people coming with the Windrush generation from Jamaica to England and from the wider Caribbean. So their Pentecostalism is coming, it's coming from America. It's not coming from from the Welsh revival. Exactly, exactly. And is there a difference between charismatic spirituality and Pentecostal spirituality? Do you differentiate in your work? I think I do differentiate. And I think there's an important reason for that. So on the surface, if you went to a charismatic Anglican church, for example, and a, you know, a black Pentecostal church, they would look very similar. You're going to see similar things. You're going to see people probably speaking in tongues. You're going to see people in exuberant worship, you're going to see some dancing, maybe a bit of rolling on the floor, you know, the kind of typical thing we imagine when we think of Pentecostal worship. And you can have that in predominantly white evangelical um, charismatic churches or in a predominantly black or Asian or um, Latinx church. But then I think the difference that's important for me, at least, is to understand the roots of these different movements when, I, when you're talking about Pentecostalism, you're talking about a movement that globally has predominantly been among global populations, often poorer people. It's been a movement that has not been welcomed by the mainstream. It's been quite a subversive and in some ways quite radical movement in the ways that it has empowered the poor, empowered women and given room to people who would not traditionally have been accepted within historic mainline churches. Whereas the charismatic movement has often thrived among established historic denominations. You know, you have the charismatic renewal in the Anglican church, which is a totally different demographic in the UK to what happens when you look at Pentecostal churches. So for me, there's something quite important about not conflating the two because of the the politics and the history of the two groups of people. Uh, What is your background are you a Pentecostal are you coming from the Pentecostal tradition are you are you observing it from outside what's your uh, orientation towards all this this is a very good question um I think I thought I grew up Pentecostal interestingly in a in a black Pentecostal church in a very white denomination um so in a very unusual position so so my church congregation was predominantly black yeah, mainly okay. Jamaican but also you know, other islands of the Caribbean, Ghana, Zimbabwe, etc. But the Assemblies of God denomination is, is overwhelmingly white. Um, so I didn't realise this until I went to Bible college for two years. And that's when I realised that I wasn't actually in a black denomination, which I think had some impact, I would say, on the politics of my church, even though um, it wasn't really acknowledged that much. Um, because I think some of the black denominations, and this is actually quite true for many of black Pentecostal churches in Britain, Church of God, New Testament Church of God as well, you'd assume that these are like black denominations, but actually the headquarters in the US are predominantly white denominations. Um, so there's something I think quite different in the politics of, of these churches compared to 
someone like Church of God in Christ, which is a black denomination through and through in the US and around the world. Um, and probably also other kind of neo-Pentecostal Nigerian churches or Ghanaian ones. All right, we're going to talk about politics shortly. So I'm going to put a pin in that one. I want to go for the next word in your subtitle, pneumatology, very quickly. What is pneumatology? So pneumatology within Pentecostalism is interesting because it's, it's in theology, it's all about the Holy Spirit and how right. we understand the Holy Spirit. But for Pentecostals, spirituality and pneumatology are very deeply intertwined okay. um, because actually in the Pentecostal experience, we don't just know the spirit by thinking about the spirit yeah. intellectually, but we encounter the spirit. And so there's a real expectation, actually, we we know God by experience, not just by doctrine. Yeah. And so the, the line between spirituality, encountering the spirit, experiencing the spirit and, you know, theologizing about the spirit is actually not the same as it is, I think, in in other traditions. There's not a whole lot of, well, I guess you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't associate Pentecostalism with a theology of the Holy Spirit. I associate, I don't. I associate them with the encounter and experience of the Holy Spirit. So when you ask a, a Pentecostal about pneumatology, they'll talk about experiences. But if you asked an Anglican about pneumatology, they'll point you to some books. Yeah. <laughs> right. Unless they're charismatic Anglicans, in which case. Unless they're white, they probably... uh, middle class, <laughs> uh, public school educated. Yeah. All right. Which leads us to the politics of embodiment, which is the third clause in your subtitle. Uh, what do you mean by the politics of embodiment, Selena? For me, what, what brought this theme out in the thesis for me, and I'm sorry if I tell you a little story about this rather than just answer the question directly. No, but what, what brought me to this whole problem was when I was reading the story of Pentecostalism um, and, of, and particularly the story of the Azusa Street Revival, what was often missed out of the of accounts of the revival was what was actually happening to the people socially and politically at the time. So when you read many histories of Pentecostalism, you hear all about the revival at Azusa Street, people confessing their sins, people um, having heal experiencing healings. And you also hear people talk about how wonderful it was that people of different racial groups were together at Azusa Street um, and people traveling from all over the world and how much Azusa Street represented this very special moment within Christian history and this is often then brought forward as a reason why Pentecostalism is really special and all of this kind of stuff but then when you read the kind of detailed histories of Azusa Street what I actually began to see was that it, these accounts of Azusa Street and of Pentecostal history can be overly idealistic but when you start to read more critical accounts of Pentecostal history what you begin to see is in William Seymour's own words this race war emerging at, Pen at Azusa Street where actually Charles Parham, who was his theology teacher, who in one history that I read actually used to speak at KKK rally. Oh, yeah, he was a theology, right? Yeah, he was an unrepentant exactly. white race. So he's kind of sabotaging his user street. And, you know, other white leaders in the history of the early movement begin to create these theological tensions. And so much of, 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 I mean, William Seymour's own reflections on this are basically we can't trust white people to lead Azusa Street because they will rip it to pieces because of their refusal to really embrace this intercultural movement. And so you, the, the kind of beginnings of, of Assemblies of God is a kind of pulling away from this multicultural movement in order to establish a white-only denomination. So I started to ask, well, there's all this celebration of revival, all this celebration of this move of the spirit, 
But at the same time, there's this refusal to reject white supremacy, this inability to critically reflect on power and race and how that's working within the church. So th this is the kind of reality that was disturbing me a little bit and making me have to do some real thinking around, well, what was happening within the imagination of these early Pentecostals that made them refuse to critically reflect on these questions of race? And why does William Seymour himself ban any talks of politics? Like he refuses to allow politics to be talked about, despite the fact that many of the congregation are living in the aftermath um, in their own families of slavery. They're dealing with the kind of the violence of white supremacy in their society, but that is not allowed to be um, part of the consciousness of the Pentecostal believers. Um, and so I was wanting to wrestle with these questions. So the, the, the politics of embodiment stuff is saying, well, we need to begin to not only think about pneumatology, but also what are the real lived experiences of these people in terms of class, in terms of race, in terms of gender? And what does it mean to critically reflect on those realities as part of what it is to be living as people full of the spirit, encountering the spirit? How do we not end up with this dichotomy between this renewal of the spirit, which doesn't then deal with these political issues around power and abuses of power and oppression. So you differentiate between like a sort of a classical Pentecostalism and then a progressive Pentecostalism. Mm. So the, if the classical Pentecostals are the ones who don't really integrate their life in the Holy Spirit with their political socioeconomic <laughs> realities, do the progressive Pentecostals, what, what does that look like for progressive Pentecostals? Yeah, so this, this differentiation is from the work of Millet and Yamamori, who do a, a research project in kind of Pentecostalism in places in Africa, in Latin America, in parts of Asia. And they're trying to explore what kind of Pentecostalism now exists. And when they're talking about pen, progressive Pentecostalism, and I borrow the language from them, they're thinking about Pentecostals for whom dealing with issues of poverty, of social inequality and social justice are core to their ministry. So they're, they're, they're talking about these kind of Pentecostals who around the world in different spaces see mission to the poor, you know, caring for orphans as part of what it is to be people full of the spirit. And they don't live within that dichotomy that says life in the spirit is about speaking in tongues and healing, but not about dealing with social injustice. So, that, so that's the kind of Pentecostalism that I was really wanting to explore in my work. Yeah. So tell us then, I'm just reading your abstract. I'm just getting you to e explicate your own work here. You say, <laughs> I argue in this thesis that Pentecostalism has been characterized by a tension between a pneumatic dualism and a pneumatic integralism in relation to human embodiment. That's a lot of 50 pound words there, Selena. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm fortunate that I have uh, in front of me now, I have the world's expert on Pentecostal embodied <laughs> politics. So I'm glad you're going to tell me. So tell us, unpack this. What is, what is pneumatic dualism and what is pneumatic integralism? So effectively, what I'm trying to suggest is that Pentecostalism has always been celebrated because it's been seen as undermining the kind of Western dualism of the body versus the spirit by drawing the body into worship by hyper-rationalist exactly by recognizing that you know we should embrace the body the body is part of worship in dance we feel and encounter the spirit in embodied ways 
the body is healed by the spirit, all of this stuff, which is all true. Um, but what I, what, when I talk about the dualism, what I'm saying is that that doesn't extend to an expectation that the same spirit who might heal the body or might be encountered in the body also wants to transform the realities of oppression that that body also experiences. And so there's a kind of, there's a, a kind of dualism within Pentecostal imagination about what does it mean for us to encounter the spirit? Are we happy that encounter with the spirit means that I might be physically healed, but actually the communal or social healing that we need in a racist society isn't dealt with? Am I content with that? And, and that's the dualism that I'm seeing within Pentecostal history and also in contemporary Pentecostalism to some extent. In your, in your uh, church tradition, did you ever have that kind of idea of like soul ties or family, Oh yeah, right? So I, I've been in Pentecostal er movements before and I always find it really interesting. Majority white Pentecostal church I was, I was a part of for a while. And they're really big on the idea that you can have like your family history can have a, a spiritual influence on you and you have to, you pray to redeem your family ties or you, right. Or you're released from the Mm. bonds and all this. And they they just love that kind of stuff. Generational curses. Yeah. Generational curses. Absolutely love it. They'll, they'll they'll just, they'll line up. They'll literally line up around the block in order to release themselves from generational curses. And yet if you bring up critical race theory, (laughs) (laughs) and I just feel like, I wish we could, I wish we could just tell these white Pentecostals that critical race theory is just soul ties. It's just talking about how history affects somebody's the history of a past group of people can affect the present in uh, experience of an individual yes exactly but there is a huge gap this is that so this you would call that pneumatic dualism where they're they're able yes. to talk about the spiritual life and they're not able to see it happen in 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 the social structures and political structures around yes them. yes and particularly being being content with that that's the thing that i found disturbing in the old accounts is that how is it that Pentecostals can be happy to say, you know, we've encountered the living spirit of God, and but we're still going to be undermining our brother because of his race, or we're still going to be holding women back from positions of responsibility. And of course, women can preach in the early movement, but as soon as denominations get set up, women are sidelined. And, and there's this kind of like claim, this kind of claim that the spirit has made all things new, but actually some of the old things that allow us to keep power that we want to hold on to, we're going to keep those things. And I, I, I wanted to really expose this dualism in Pentecostal and charismatic thoughts, which I, which I also think extends to just Western theology in general, I think. And I think we've seen some of that in how we're not really talking about or expecting that all of life really should be changed by this, claim on the new life of christ or the new life of the spirit well we say oh uh the gospel is all about personal salvation and justice is all about your individual life being redeemed and then as soon as you somebody starts saying okay well now that i've been personally saved and justice has happened now i want to work it out in my real life yeah then they get church leaders telling them oh you're just a social justice warrior you're distracted yeah, the gospel it's kind of like exactly you're not allowed to actually care about working justice in the world you have to just talk about it all the time without actually yes, doing it right? yes so what's the opposite to, or, or is this a spectrum what where does pneumatic integralism come in i think it is a spectrum so pneumatic integralism is 
the space in it, and I and I I kind of explore examples of where I think this is happening today in certain case studies I find in, in Pentecostalism in England. But pneumatic integralism is about recognizing that primarily that all of life is one and that the work of the spirit shouldn't be segregated into particular corners of human life and experience. Like but healing thought, or worship. Exactly. But it should be embracing all of life. So we can't really talk about revival if we still have white supremacy and, and misogyny running rampant in our churches. So something's missing from the revival that we're claiming happened. Mm-hmm. Um, because a kind of integral perspective on the work of the spirit means that the work of the spirit can't be considered to be complete when we have groups of people who are marginalized and where we haven't really attended to those problems of exclusion, which are undermining the work of the spirit, which Pentecostalism's own history testifies to. And so so I think it's really one of Pentecostalism to be true to itself, to its own history, and to preserve that history of this kind of radical, inclusive work of the spirit that we see in the early movement before it got ruined by people's love for power. So if if even William Seymour was didn't want to talk about politics, where 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 are you starting to see historically? Where do you see this happen in Pentecostalism? So I, I think that you see in um, in certain early Black Pentecostal denominations. So William Seymour isn't, I think, representative of of Black Pentecostalism. He's one person who had a particular stance. And I do, in other work, talk about the kind of racial trauma he was dealing with and how that impacted his theology. But I think that there are other examples, Church of God of Christ being one denomination, Church of God in Christ, who from the outset take quite a a Black radical approach to their theology. And they really embrace African traditional spirituality and culture. They're quite attentive to Black political issues and they, they build a lot of this into their thinking. You know, or their work in the Caribbean is really about the development of people in the Caribbean. They, they kind of have this, this African diasporic focus, which is quite unique for the time. So there are elements even in the earliest days of this happening. But I think in the UK at the moment, the examples that I ex- use to examine this are churches that have really done that real critical thought and realised that the times in which Pentecostalism is, is living now are quite different. And if they, if Pentecostals are not able to think critically about their theology, the political needs of the time, and take seriously the needs of, of vulnerable people and the oppressed, then effectively they're not doing the job of, of witnessing to the gospel. And, and it's often, I think, driven by this real concern for how are they witnesses in their generation and, and how they're finding ways to not only talk about that and proclaim that through preaching, but to embody that through social action. What does it, what form does it take? Is there a different, is Pentecostal politics different from other types of politics? Like what does Pentecostalism bring to the table? I mean, I think that there are a couple of things. I think one of them is that Pentecostalism is, I think is quite special as a Christian tradition. I don't think it's unique because I think there are other traditions which probably also might have elements of this. But I think the, what's unique about Pentecostal politics Firstly, is like the demographics of the movement. And I think that makes a big difference when you have a movement that is has a history of not being like for poorer people or migrants, but made up of these groups of people. I think it makes quite a big difference 
to the kind of politics that's possible. And it comes with challenges because part of that is when you have groups of people, and I think we see that in the UK, who are just trying to survive in a hostile environment, the idea that they must then be, you know, protesting government policy on X, Y, or Z might be asking for too much. Um, But there's always been examples in the UK of Black Pentecostals who have actually taken seriously the need to be, you know, speaking up about rights and justice in order that they might survive um, and and groups setting up credit unions informally and formally, you know, protesting around police brutality and all those kinds of things, which are part of, of, of Christian history in this country. I think that's always been part of it. Um, but I, I think that those those the aspect of, of of who actually is part of the church and who's setting the pace, who's setting the agenda. I think that's something quite special that Pentecostalism brings to to politics. Um, and I think it's probably also a perspective which recognizes the importance of holding together the kind of the kind of spiritual, the prayer, the spirituality of action. I think that's quite important that it doesn't move too far into a kind of functional atheism whereby there's no real expectation that prayer is really necessary or that God might intervene. But I think Pentecostals hold together this this pragmatic um, aspect of their work in which they need to understand policy, they need to organise, they need to have these particular skills, but they also really need to pray. And these two things can be held together because they have this real consciousness of spiritual powers spiritual warfare, there's a, a holding together of these two things in some of the people I spoke to that I thought was really fascinating. Is this a, a minority amongst? So yes, I guess we're yes. specifically talking about Black Pentecost, Black British Pentecostalism right now, mm, aren't we? Yeah. Is, this, is what you're describing a minority position or is this a, what, if I went I into a Black Pentecostal is. church, would I find this anywhere? No, I think it's still quite a minority position. I think you, there will be lots of Pentecostals now who and this goes across the board whether you're thinking about like majority white pentecostals or mixed churches or or mainly black yeah. churches there is now a kind of common belief i think that social action is important caring for the poor is important um but i think the the kind of progressiveness that i've been interested in is actually going beyond charity yeah. to kind of really trying to shape the future of how our society stuff. works yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. that's still a very minority approach there's yeah. not many Pentecostals who are imagining that kind of of work and the people that I spoke to were often working in charities or running charities um, rather than leaders of churches um, who were still very much focused on the life of the congregation and were, and often supported people to do that kind of work but it wasn't always the case that these churches were in their kind of week to week sermons or activities doing the kind of organizing of political political life that I think is probably what's necessary. Who are some of the people that you're engaging with in this work? Are, are you were there specific uh, charities you're looking at or were there specific writers or speakers that you that you can recommend? Yeah, so I mean, I think the early work on Pentecostalism has been done by people like Valentina Alexander, Robert Beckford, um, in who looked particularly at Black Pentecostalism. I mean, Beckford's then, very critical of Pentecostalism, isn't he? He is, he is. And I, and I think that I, I mean, I remember presenting some of my early thinking to, at, at a conference that he was at, 
And he really grilled me on like my use of liberation in talking about Pentecostals. And it did, it did make me go back and rethink some of what I was saying, because I think I was, I, I then had to go back and really think, it's actually, what is it that I'm seeing among Pentecostals? Because it's not liberation in the way that he imagined it. But what I, I feel, I feel defensive of Pentecostalism a little bit, because I think that in, in Robert's work, he is trying to encourage the movement to look outside of itself to find inspiration for its political activism. So he wants them to look to kind of Rastafarianism and, and this kind of radical dreads um, theology, as he calls it, which I think is a bit beyond the scope of what Pentecostals actually do. And I don't think Pentecostalism has to look outside of itself. It has to understand its own tradition, its own history, and let that lead it forward. And then you're also engaging with with womanist theology. I mean, you described at the end of your thesis how you you began by not being a womanist, but but you've ended by calling yourself a woman. <laughs> so what what it, first of all, what is womanist theology, and second, why the reticence? Why? Yeah, tell us about question. that journey. It's a good question. I think for me, the the reticence is that the language isn't language that black black, black British women have come up with, and this I think is my reticence is that it's. It's, the reason why I use it is because African-American theologians, philosophers, thinkers use this language, taken from Alice Walker's work, to talk about the work Black women do in thinking about life and flourishing and working towards that. Um, and, they, and this language, I think, is helpful because it's not kind of Black feminist, and feminist often is, is, is really talking about white feminism, although not to naming it as white feminism. And then black feminism is like, we're doing a black version of what white women have been doing. I think womanism is saying, we're actually going to choose our own language. And from the outset, we're going to hold together in an intersectional way, the questions of gender and race and class. And we're going to talk about sexuality, probably and ecology and all these other issues. So I, I like the breadth of womanist thought. I like that it's, it's tackling multiple issues and multiple um, matters around justice. Um, but I also feel like I'm borrowing language that's not come out of my own context. Um, but I think also for me, as a woman of Jamaican heritage, I feel like I do identify with that more because I think for the women who who talked about womanist thought, they're they're thinking about this as a as a as a language that has been born out of the experience of Black women's experiences of slavery, and that's something that in my ancestry I identify with. So I think I can I think I can borrow it, and I do. But I want to do some more thinking about, you know, do we need You're not to putting it about... on your business card yet. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, is, is, is womanist theology, I mean, it, it's, is it coming out of a, 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 an American Pentecostal experience or is it alien to the Pentecostal world? Well, it's not coming out of Pentecostal experience. There are lots of womanist scholars, womanist theologians. I think for them, Pentecostalism wouldn't be, wouldn't be a foreign experience. So... Someone like Yolanda Pierce is like clearly a womanist Pentecostal, but then eat other womanists. I spoke to Ebony Marshall Chairman once and she spoke about being a Baptocostal. Um, she's a Baptist, but Black Baptist and Pentecostalism <laughs> have a lot in common in terms of like uh -huh, uh -huh. their expression. So I think there's lots of overlaps in terms of spirituality and, and kind of norms between Black Pentecostals and yeah. Baptists in the US, Black Baptists. But you're doing translation, you're doing double the work of translation because you're bringing american voices to britain and you're bringing womanist voices to pentecostalism i just uh, how have you mm. found that experience of trying to use some of this language that in the british pentecostal experience 
it's a good point I mean it's been it's been something that I think has come out of my own journey so I think as I as a woman raised in Pentecostalism who didn't know anything about womanist theology although to be fair I was experiencing womanist theology in practice with the yes the black women preachers I was hearing every week and the pastors who were leading me for sure but I wasn't reading womanist theology and I think experiencing that has for me just been life-changing and also transformative for my scholarship and my and my work mm-hmm. so I couldn't really resist thinking in an intersectional way about the questions of gender and race and class throughout my thesis yeah and that's really why in, in the end I think actually what I am doing is womanist work even though I didn't know it when I first started like six years ago it became quite clear to me as I read womanist theology that I was doing the same kind of thing um, so it, it, it felt, it's felt quite natural for me to bring that to Pentecostalism because I knew I wanted to look at Pentecostalism from the perspective of gender and class and race. So it's felt like a quite natural and organic move, really. Let's bring Jesus in. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this is a Christian conversation. We can bring Christ in. <laughs> so you, you, you want to argue that this kind of integrated pneumatology that we're talking about here, like a... a, a a theology of the Holy Spirit that integrates spiritual experience with practical social political change. You think this is seen in Jesus's resurrection? Yeah. Now, I would like to hear more about this. <laughs> See, this is my favorite part of the thesis. Okay. This is, when I, this is when I thought maybe I really am a theologian. At okay. The core. Even I know I know I'm called a theologian, but I sometimes think. I like the sociology of religion as well, the history, but actually this chapter for me was so deeply moving when I was researching and writing this that I often had to stop and just like take a breath because I just found it amazing. So so the, the final chapter in which I make this theological argument effectively, which is that for, for Pentecostals, the life of the spirit and the work of the spirit is at the core of theology and experience. And and I make the point throughout the thesis that the problem is that we don't know how to integrate that with the realities of embodied life, and particularly the oppressions that the body experiences and that particular body's experience. And because I'm not wanting to blend this down to, oh, you know, everyone has their personal oppression. I want to recognise the groups of people in our world who experience these kinds of oppression in the world. And... For me, when I, I read Jesus's resurrection through womanist theologians, people like um, Kelly Brown Douglas, who think about the resurrection of Jesus in a very political, the death of Jesus in a very political way and the resurrection, that Jesus is not just, you know, the son of God who died for our sins. That's not how they're reading the, res- the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're recognizing Jesus as a person who is crucified as a political act by the powers which refuse the ways of God among them. And therefore Jesus' resurrection as this mockery of the political powers of the dominating power of the political life. And so if Jesus' death then can be understood as this. Well, that's Colossians too. That's putting exactly the powers right. to open yes. shame. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. So if this is what's happening then in Jesus' death and resurrection, this, this you know, domination and then shaming of the powers, then actually what happens to the body of Jesus is quite important. Um, and, I, and I also read this with the help of Candida Moss and Shelley Rambo, both of who deal with the scars of Jesus. Because I was trying to read, you know, where is the notice about the scars of Jesus? Because the scars of Jesus seem to be quite important to me. 
if, if Jesus is resurrected, particularly in Paul's imagination, by the spirit, the spirit who raised Christ from the dead, and I'm, I'm holding this together, and I'm asking, well, so if the spirit raised Christ from the dead, and Jesus is still has Jesus' scars after the resurrection, then we have to maybe play around with this idea that the spirit actually retains the scars for a reason. And so if the spirit then, if this, the resurrection as a spirit event means that we get to look at the scars of Jesus, then what is it that these scars should be telling us? What is it that we need to be noting about these scars? And so, that, so what, I'm, what I'm suggesting is that, that the, the spirit is calling us to attention, to attend to the scarred body of Jesus, uh, and then to be asking, well, what are the scars on the bodies of our neighbors then? If we need to attend to scars, not erase them, not refuse to look upon them, but actually take note, notice the scars. These scars that are happening on Jesus's body as a victim of this political domination, then how does the spirit who raised Christ from the dead and retained the scars, how might that spirit be calling us to attend to the scarred bodies around us, those people who themselves are experiencing the heavy weight of systems and structures that are weighing upon them? I can see why you had to stop when you were writing that. I, you're making me cry, Celia. This is, this is a beautiful. This is amazing. The scars oh. are part of the resurrection story. Yeah. Of course they are. They are the message that the spirit has retained. Yeah. And, and, this, and I want to, and this for me was the thing I wanted to give to Pentecostals and Charismatics is because so often in these traditions, the emphasis is the kind of, the victory and the, yes, the right. moving on from trauma and struggle and death and the, the the idea that actually these the scars are something to be covered over to be erased while we claim this victorious life in Christ but actually when I thought about this I thought well no this is something for us to notice because I do think that part of the struggle that Pentecostals and Charismatics have and this is I think a broader evangelical and even broader Christian issue is we don't know what to do with this. We don't know what to do with the ongoing scars that Jesus has or that we ourselves have in the world. We don't want to look at racism. We don't want to look at misogyny. We don't want to look at the pain that we're causing to people who are LGBT+. We don't want to look at the damage that's being done. We want to cover it over, sing some songs, and move on as quickly as possible. But I think we are being called here to look at those things in detail. And now I'm going to ask again, what does Pentecostalism bring? Once we're looked at the scars, what else is Pentecostalism bringing to the table then? Once we're attending to these things, what does Pentecostals, how do they bring uh, our attention to the scars differently than liberation theologians or evangelical theologians? I, mean, I think Pentecostal is probably at the moment. So I, I'm remembering a conversation that I had with one of my one of the people that I interviewed um, and this person themselves spoke to me about how they had grown up in a particular place where they had, and many of their friends were involved with crime. They're from a very socioeconomically deprived part of their city. And they spoke about how the people who, the kind of like police hated these young people and they treated them with, with, with disdain. And when they, these young people were arrested, put into young offenders institutions, these are kind of prisons for younger people, how they didn't have anyone to advocate for them. 
And this, this young woman whose, whose work was around rehabilitation for young men, particularly who had been involved with gangs and criminal activities. And she spoke with so much compassion. She was a Pentecostal young woman who spoke with so much compassion about how God had called her to this work. And I remember listening to her speak and thinking, there's something quite powerful, I think, about her because she was from these same places. And she wasn't speaking as somebody who had kind of gone into such a place or who had been trained to be in this kind of work. It was, it was heart work. It was something that had come out of her own experiences of these very places. And there was something so deeply profound about her, the way she recalled, the way she talked about these young men, like they were her own family and the, the way that they were not just a problem to be solved or she didn't go there with papers from some researcher or some policy document. But she was probably one of the best placed people to understand and deal with what was happening in these communities. And I just thought, if we really want to see like real incredible action and change, the people we're listening to has to be different. Because actually what she contributes to our understanding of justice or liberation or politics is, is so powerful and so overlooked. So a lot of theology is just theory, right? Mm. Quite often in our world. Mm. So there's a lot of theologians just yeah. pontificating. But with Pente the kind of thing you're just describing, your theology can't be theoretical, right? No. Like this is experience coming from a theological conviction yeah but it's it's embodied right in the moment with that young woman that you just exactly yeah and, and it, it was amazing because what she what she exhibited was something so wonderful that you know we might write about this in a in a, in a while we're sitting in a library but this is what she was living in her day-to-day -day life yeah yeah we so can write powerful. about the, the the theory of scars yeah but when you are somebody who actually has them and you're doing something about it that's very yeah. different Ah, I think, Selena, we might have discovered what Pentecostalism brings to the table. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, what's the reception been on, uh, of this? Do, do you have any sense of, of it being read and received by people that you, that you were hoping would read this? I mean, I haven't really done much about sharing it at the moment. I feel like I finished and I went into the next term of work and then I went to Jamaica on holiday and now it's January. <laughs> so, so my kind of plan this, is this year is to really work on how to share these thoughts and reflections um but there were so there were so many people who have wanted to read this and who've heard little bits and it and the good thing about it is, is is bits like that last chapter I can put in sermons and put in reflections and talk about quite easily so I, I think it's going to be something that I hope will be used that will be thought about that will be wrestled with um, because I think we really need to think about these questions in a much deeper way. Well, if there's any publishers listening to this, get in touch. I have got a great <laughs> manuscript for you. In fact, Selena, could we make this uh, PhD even available to people if they wanted to read? If any listener. Oh, yes. yes, if, yes. If, I'll just say this now. If, if anybody wants a copy of this uh, fantastic uh, PhD, just send an email to info at tenttheology.com. And I guarantee I will. I promise I will send you a, a digital pdf of this of this phd thesis so thank you selena yeah well 
thank you so much, Selena. I really, uh, I'm really glad that I got to snag the Dr. Selena Stone interview <laughs> hot off the press. And I hope that you'll come back again. Do you have any other projects coming up that are, what, what's interesting in your mind these days now that you've got this under your belt? What, are, what else are you thinking of? Yeah, I mean, I'm working on a project at the moment on the well-being of, of Black, Asian, ethnic minority clergy in the Church of England. That's my next big research okay. project, which I think is going to be incredible. I'm hopeful that it's going to create some useful recommendations for change. But yeah, there's, I mean, there's uh, so many things, Stephen, that I have in my mind that I want to explore and do work on. So when you're ready with that, let me know. We'll we'll have you on again to talk about that when you're ready. But until then, Selena, thank you so much for coming on to the tent. Uh, Where can people go if they, is is there a website? What's the best place for people to go if they want to contact you or find out more about you and your work? I think probably Twitter is my most active social media. That's also on my list of things to do better this year. Okay. Um, so I'm at Selena R. Stone on Twitter and Instagram, though Instagram's not that great for me. <laughs> oh, I hope your soul is okay on Twitter. I couldn't do Twitter. My soul wouldn't survive Twitter. <laughs> Thank you, Selena. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation and I loved reading. Well, I'm going to keep reading your thesis. I, I read... I've been reading it in preparation for this conversation and it's a really good one so I'm looking forward to more of that it's been a pleasure well I hope to see you soon friend you too Bye. bye thank you for listening thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music this show only exists because of support from listeners like you if you have found something we made to be good or useful please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leaving a good review on your chosen podcast platform. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.